in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. We sang earlier, while shepherds kept their watching, and it's this nice, quaint phrase that we talk about. Does anyone know what that means, while shepherds kept their watching? You ever thought about this? So this story, actually, to an ear that understood it, it opens on a very hard and rough note. This is not your Christmas sort of normal pageant or whatever. What is the the Christmas play that, that takes place in a church? It opens on these poor and smelly shepherds who lived outside for about nine or 10 months a year. So if you've ever served in an area where maybe in a homeless shelter or something where people have been living outside for a long time or amidst animals for months at a time, you get a sense of uh, just the element that you're with in terms of the long beards and just being covered in, in um, soot and just sort of leaves and grass and all the rest of it. So it opens on this scene. They live nearly year-round outside. They're poor, they're humble, and they're lowly and even despised. They're the gruffest of the gruff. And it says that the Bible says they were keeping watch, which we often just get this cute sense of like, oh, they're watching over their sheep. But what it means is that some of the shepherds are sleeping while the other ones are actually performing a watch, right? If you watch any sort of fantasy movie or medieval movie, there are people that have to be the watchmen in the tower or the watchmen outside the camp for the first part of the night or the second part of the night and they trade off. So that's what it means here when they're keeping watch. It's that some of them are sleeping and some of them are awake watching for threats. Now, what threats would a shepherd encounter? And this is principally uh, predators, some like wolves or jackals or whatever kind of animal they dealt with in that area. Uh, and also thieves that would come in and try to steal either from the sleeping shepherds or to try to take one of the sheep. And so for that reason, the shepherds carried two implements that you hear about, right? When, like in Psalm 23, uh, you know, we talk about how God's rod and his staff, they comfort me. And we just sort of glaze over it without paying any attention. But the shepherds carried these two tools, the staff and the rod. Now the staff was like the crook, right? You see like the shepherd's like hook thing. Um, that was for guiding the sheep around, maybe giving them a little whack if you needed to, grabbing, like you'd get the hook around their neck or their leg and you could kind of guide them uh, with love or with a little bit of force. Uh, but it was a, a, a gentler implement. But then the rod was essentially a club. And this rod, think of it as a club, but with a little bit of like a, a little thimble, a little nub at the end of it. Instead of it just being a club ending, it had this sort of point. So you could swing this whole club and all of the kinetic energy, instead of coming down on this big fist-shaped thing, it would come down to this little nub at the end of a fist-shaped thing. And that's good for cracking skulls. Uh, and so the, these men were not these gentle sort of while shepherds kept their watching, you know, they weren't just cozy. They were out there with weapons and they used them. And, and there are museums around the world where they found these rods, these ancient shepherds' rods, and they were well used. They find bone fragment, teeth, blood from all sorts of animals inside these rods. So they used these to fight off predators. And so uh, I always get a kick out of how this story opens, and it almost sends us into this liturgical sense of peace. And, oh, it's Christmas Eve, or it's Christmas, we're with our family. But really, if you were an ancient hearer, hearing about these shepherds, you'd think like stink and you know rough people, almost like we'd think of a, a sailor a couple hundred years ago, living outside, and they've got this club with this you know, nib-nub thing on it that's good for cracking skulls and that they used regularly. Uh, shepherds were not clean, 
and they were not allowed into the temple for that reason. A lot of people don't know that shepherds were not allowed into the Jewish temple really ever. In order to go inside, they would have to perform a ceremonial cleaning, and then they'd have to wait a certain number of days. But they're poor, and they have to tend to the sheep. They didn't just have a bunch of other people they could pull in to watch their sheep for them. And so they were just consistently unclean, stinky, dealing with these animals, and never allowed to go into the temple for that reason. They were a perfect example of those who are left out, outsiders, and marginalized from society. Yet the glory of the Christmas story, this great thing about Advent, is that they are the first to hear the good news. They are the first people, besides Mary, that hear that the Christ has come, that the Messiah is here. They may be poor. They may be rough and gruff. They probably use some uh, not very choice language uh, around their trade. But the good news of God is for them, and it came to them first. The good news of God all throughout Scripture, and especially Luke is good at highlighting this, probably because he was a slave himself, uh, is that the good news of God is this great reversal. The exalted are humbled, and the humble are exalted. Because God himself humbled himself that he might become like us. He lived a sinless life. He brought good news to the unimportant of all different kinds of, of society. He died for our sins. He defeated death, and now, because of that, he is exalted, and at his name, all kings and all rulers of the earth will bow down. He humbled himself. Jerome, one of the early church writers, said that God was born amid a dung heap because he knew that that's where he would find us. That God himself, when he made himself man, he was born amid, amidst animals, amid a dung heap, because that's where he would find us. Now, uh, we talked about this two years ago, and I'm sure all of you remember my sermons from two years ago just very well. Uh, <laughs> but uh, just a brief running over this quick. Uh, a lot of people have this idea that Jesus was born in a cave, uh, and it's because of this notorious mistranslation about there being no room for Jesus in the inn. That's why we're reading out of the NIV today, because it's an updated translation, and they got it right. Uh, there were no hotels in the ancient world, especially not in a town of 200 people. Uh, there, there was no inn to speak of. But what Joseph and Mary were doing is going to their ancestral home uh, in the city of David to be counted for this census. There was no inn. There was no like angry innkeeper like, get out of here. You know, you're pregnant and not married. None of that stuff. Um, even though it makes for a good like church play. Uh, they were going to their relative's house to be registered at their ancestral home. But there was a ton of other people who also were going to that house uh, to be registered at their ancestral home. And there was no room in the upper room. So that word in is the exact same Greek word as later when they're celebrating the, the Lord's Supper in the upper room. It's the same thing. Upper room and in, they translated those differently, but they come from the same word and it's the same thing. So in ancient Palestinian and Jewish homes, the humans would live up top, and then in the winter, both to make it warmer for the people, but also not have the animals freeze, they'd bring the animals inside on the lower level. So the animals were in the lower level of your house, the people were in the upper level, the upper room, uh, and all these relatives were pouring in from all over the Levant, and there was no space left. My son has a question. We'll talk about whatever your question is. I'm sure it's great. We'll do it right after I'm done here, okay? Uh, <laughs> I love that. See his hand up. We'll talk right after. Um, so there was no room in the upper room, and so the, the only place where there could be some space and some privacy for Mary to give birth 
was in this lower level with the animals. And that's why Jesus is born amidst the animals, right, and, and put in this manger, this feeding trough. But his, it wasn't like he was in a cave in the middle of nowhere with some angry innkeeper, you know, casting out their family. Their family was right above them, probably trying to give them some needed privacy, but they were there uh, in case uh, they were needed. Um, and uh, I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't hard for the shepherds to find the home, right, with Mary, like, laboring. You know, there's only probably 50 homes. If there's only 200 people in Bethlehem, there's maybe 40 or 50 homes. And uh, those walls are just one panel of wood or whatever, or just stone. So you could hear the, the woman in labor, I'm sure. So just a bit of a, of a correction. A lot of Bibles are getting this right now. A lot of pastors are preaching this to their congregation. So I, I'm seeing some of you nodding your heads. This isn't the first time you've heard it. Um, but hopefully... Uh, over the next 20, 30, 40 years, our whole culture can kind of unmake that cave story that we've been telling for the last 500 years. All right. Um, I do wonder what the shepherds must have thought when they heard that they would go find this baby and this baby would be in a manger. So for us, it's like, well, yeah, that's where Jesus was laid when he was born. It's normal. And we almost associate, if, you, if we were playing like a password or word association game and I said manger, you would instantly go to like baby or baby Jesus or something like that nativity scene. Uh, but when they heard manger, what they're hearing is feeding trough. Okay, so I don't speak any French, but in French, isn't that, isn't that the verb for to eat, manger? Is that, is that right? Is that, that's the verb for to eat. And that's how it passed into English, is that this is, uh, the, the baby Jesus was placed in a, an eating trough. And that's why we have that word manger in English. It comes from the French word for to eat. So here, God made man is born among animals and placed in this feeding trough. Now, a lot of people don't know this. This is a, a really cool historical tidbit. In the 600s AD, Christian lands all over the place, all over the world, were being conquered uh, by Muslim conquering armies. And the leaders in the early church knew it. One city after another was being conquered from the outer extremities of like the sort of Christian world to the actual core cities. I don't know if you know this, but there were seven capitals of the early Christian church. Six of them were conquered by Muslim armies. Seven, there were seven capitals, all the places Paul writes to, and you think of Alexandria, Rome, Damascus, Antioch, a few others that I'm leaving out. There were seven capitals, and six of them were conquered in bloody conquest by these Muslim armies in the 600s. So all they knew, they thought maybe this is the end. Like all of these Christian cities are being conquered by force, uh, we hear a lot about the Crusades, and rightly so. There's a lot to be guilty about there, but it's really just the reversal of what had happened 600 years before. All of those places were Christian territories that had been brutally conquered, and so then the Crusades were sort of also bad, but they were just the reversal of the same thing, trying to get that same space back. Um, but leaders in the early church knew that one city after another was falling, and they had to do something quick if they wanted to preserve the scrolls, uh, the Bible, historical artifacts, paintings, sculptures, and so on. And one thing that they also knew they had to preserve were relics. There, it was only 600 years since the birth of Jesus then, so they actually had many relics that were not just like, you know, there's a lot of like relics of like, Jesus visited Ireland. Here, put some money in this coffer. And it's like, well, come on, let's, let's be real. Uh, so there was a lot of made-up relics later on. But in the early church, there were actually some true relics that truly went back to uh, like an actual item that was used by one of the disciples or something. And so secretly the Bishop of Bethlehem arranged for some of the relics from Jesus's life to be brought to the West because they already knew that Rome is probably the one of the seven major Christian capitals. Rome is the one that's strong enough where they're just not going to be, no, the Muslim hordes are not going to try to go over there. Um, so they sent it 
west where they'd be safe. And one of the things they sent over, and we can't be sure of this, I'm not telling you this for sure, but one of the things they sent over that had been passed down from generation to generation in Bethlehem itself was supposedly the manger. So here, 600 years later, we're talking, what is that, six centuries times five generations? We're talking uh, 30 generations since the actual birth of Jesus. It's it's believable enough to me that in this town of 200 that the real manger could have passed down from believing family to believing family uh, for for 600 years. And this was a worshipped, not worshipped, but uh, a revered and, and an important item to the church that was in Bethlehem. And they sent, supposedly then, they sent the manger to Rome for safekeeping. And I believe it's probably, uh, there's a lot of false relics out there, but I believe this one is probably real. And uh, eventually, this, you know, the Vatican, the the home of the Catholic Church, uh, built a museum and kept that manger in there. And it's actually there to this day. Now, there are some pictures of it you can Google and find. You can't actually see it. It's such an important relic that they don't even have it on display. So, I mean, you can see uh, the Mona Lisa, right, face to face. There's like a glass in front of it, but you can see it. But you can't see the manger. But it is in the basement uh, of, of the Museum of the Vatican. And there's like special trips where like popes and bishops will go and look at it. And there are pictures. So they're not hiding it. They're just not putting it out in public because it's such a risk of terrorism or or something like that. But we likely, again, not certain at all, but we likely have the manger that Jesus was born in and it's kept in the museum at the Vatican. I I feel terrible even saying that because there's so many quacks out there who are like, well, in the basement of the Vatican, you know, know, who knows what you'll find? And it's like, well, no, but actually this time, this one seems right that they actually have this item kept in the the sub-levels of the museum at the Vatican. Uh, But they kept it safe and it's there to this day. And there's something amazing about that, and I, I'm, I'm glad that the Vatican doesn't have it out and risked to you know, be attacked or whatever, because it's one of the few, maybe the only physical thing that you, it's tangible, that you could touch it, that Jesus also touched. And you can be fairly certain that the baby Jesus was in this very spot, in this very tangible item. Because even though we believe these stories are true, we sometimes forget that God becoming man is not just a true story. It's actually a true thing. It's a true happening. Like God didn't just become man and you know, save our sins. He became man and he laid on that thing right there. And you could touch it with your fingers. And it's right there. And I think, oh man, that is amazing. That's what Advent is about, is God breaking into our realm and saving us, right? Putting on this uh, humility, becoming like us wearing our skin, so to speak, not in the weird way, but in like the taking on flesh, the incarnation way, that he became like us so he could go before us as our high priest. We say this, but it's true that God really did become man. He really did rest in a manger. He rested in wooden places. And that is one of the beauties of Christmas, one of the beauties of Advent, that God became man the first people that he announced his coming to were shepherds, just outcasts, smelly people who lived outside. The first person who heard the news or who, who met the resurrected Jesus was Mary Magdalene. By some accounts, possibly a, a woman of ill repute, by some not, and just depending on which tradition you follow. Um, but here God is appearing and telling the good news to shepherds and then telling the good news uh, to, to at least a, a woman who's not well-respected in her society. And what does that say about the kind of God that we serve, right? That he would make himself like us. And 
lift up the lowly, right? He exalts the humble, but he humbles the great kings of the earth. And that's, uh, that's the beauty and the mystery of Advent. So as you go back and you're exchanging gifts, whether tonight or tomorrow, you know, Christmas Eve families are better than Christmas families. I don't know if you know that, but uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, but as you go back and you're exchanging gifts and doing your normal thing, I pray that you would remember that that's what Advent is all about, that God coming down, becoming like us, lifting up the humble and humbling the exalted. Uh, let me pray to close us, and then we'll have uh, two more songs to close out. Father, we thank you for becoming like us. We thank you for humbling yourself, for emptying yourself, taking on our humble frame. We thank you for lifting up the lowly and humbling the exalted. We thank you for going before us in a sinless life, that you defeated death, you defeated sin, that you rose again on the third day, and that we too, in these humble frames, will follow you into eternity. So we thank you. Um, We just lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.